Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I had two phones, my photography phone and my corporate phone. And when my photography phone started ringing more than my corporate phone, I had an opportunity right there that I thought, Jenny, if you don't take this, you might never see where this is going to go. You have to be able to fully listen to the client and understand they're not trying to tear you down or say something negative. They're truly giving their insight on how they think and feel about this product. I am living proof that I have no formal education, no investors, and if I can build a business, you can too. And this really comes to everything. So everything in life is possible. If you want it, you can get it. Get it, get it. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd. Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Jenny Taylor. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Everything Jenny Taylor. So who is Jenny? Jenny is the founder of Jenny Taylor Boudoir Photography, which focuses on transforming the everyday woman into a bombshell at her studios, which are now located in Chicago and Nashville and Southern California for the past 10 years. All women are welcome with clients ranging from 21 years old to 85 years old. So you can imagine, right? She is a She runs and owns a boudoir photography. So once we get past all of the jokes about, you know, maybe an 85-year-old woman doing boudoir photography or, you know, a 21-year-old girl doing boudoir photography and all of the things that come with that, what she has absolutely convinced me of in this interview is that what she's doing is really like God's work here. I mean, she is making women feel beautiful. And she has touched a nerve. She's touched a nerve so much that she's not just some photographer that's like, you know, locally located in her community. She's on, she's in, first of all, she's on a plane every couple of days flying from one city to the next to run her businesses. She's been on tons of television shows. She's the real deal. There's so much to learn from her. I really fell in love with her. In fact, she's in my masterminds. Um, we're just uh, birds of a feather here. So I really, really hope that you love this inf- this uh, interview as much as I love talking to her. Before we jump into it, a lot of people have been asking me about private coaching. I'm working with a select few people that are ready to make a change in their life. Not thinking about it, but ready. If you fall into that category, go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com and fill out an application. And if it's a good fit, we'll jump on a call. So please enjoy this conversation I had with Jenny Taylor. Jenny, welcome to the show. 
Hey, Rob, what's up? You know what, man? I am so freaking excited because I don't always get to do these interviews with friends. So this is always a pleasure because, you know, when you're having a conversation with somebody as a friend and you're going out to dinner, you can't really interview them. I mean, you know, I do, but you can't really without it sounding weird. So now I get to like be a little bit weird in this interview and go deep on your life. So I am so excited to do this with you. Rob, I am so excited and I love being weird. So I'll be extra weird for you today. (laughs) (laughs) I think a good jumping off point would be to talk uh, or maybe take you back to Naperville, Illinois, if I said that (laughs) right. In, uh, In third grade, you wanted a pair of Abercrombie jeans and it was sort of like way outside your parents' finances. How do you think that shaped the entrepreneurial spirit, the entrepreneur that you are now, and maybe even sort of like informed you selling rocks to neighbors when you were <laughs> three years old. So maybe you can kind of talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I feel like I was truly a born salesperson. And and I don't like that word sometimes. And I really feel like I help people you know, find things that they maybe don't know they need. So when I was three, I thought everybody needed a cool paperweight that I painted. And so I took my little red wagon to three houses every whatever it was. And my mom would, I would say, mom, I need more houses to sell these rocks. And she'd say, you can't go. I can't see you with your little red wagon to the fourth house. I'd beg her and say, mom, let's make a deal. So I was playing that at three years old, but in third grade, um, my parents got divorced when I was seven and my father never paid child support. And my mother was a first grade school teacher. So it was me and my little sister and my mom. And in third grade, I remember vividly asking her, all the cool kids are wearing Abercrombie jeans. And I said, would you, could you buy me these? And she said, Jenny, I have, we have $42 to live on for all three of us that needs to include food and all of our clothes and activities. And I vividly remember standing in her kitchen that she still lives in today. And something came over me and just, I saw the sadness in her every day and she wanted to buy me these jeans and I wanted to be cool. And I just knew though that being cool was not what I was really looking for. I needed to start, you know, making this happen on my own, I guess you would say. And so I started a babysitting club and I remember getting $42 or whatever close to that and thinking, is this what I want to spend my money on now that I've worked? I forget how many months it was. I was like having the girls down the street work for me and finding clients for them and then taking a percentage of their revenue that they made. Um, So I've been an entrepreneur since like third grade, I would say. But you know what's interesting about this? It's not only an entrepreneur, but you know, most people will swap hours for dollars, right? They'll go out and they'll get a babysitting job, make money. You were kind of like, you know, a pimp. I mean, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that, that is super entrepreneurial. That's like one that's like one layer deeper than just sort of like doing it yourself. So I want to kind of dig in, dig into that a little bit. So I, I, so here's the question, you know, you come from a family that was divorced and you said that your dad never paid child support. Are you still in a relationship with dad or, or not really? I'm not. And um, no. So I've seen him probably maybe 20 times in the last three decades. And how do you think that's affected you moving forward as an adult? Oh my gosh, that is... So I lived with severe anxiety up until about six years ago. And then the anxiety I realized was linked back to when my father... I remember vividly, it was actually this week about 30 years ago that he... I remember him packing a bag and walking outside. I just talked to my therapist about this this week. And he said, I'm leaving. And I said, well, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm not going to be living here anymore. And I said, well, why not? I had no idea what divorce was. None of my friend's parents were divorced. It it was like a foreign concept to have a a parent leave at this point. And he said, your mom and I are not going to be living in the same house, but I still love you. And he gave me a hug. And I remember him like leaving in his truck and the sadness feeling the grief I felt that day was now I know was the most traumatic event of my life. And I've lived through a lot of things in my life. And so what I did was back then, only knowing this now, so many years later, I I was so scared when they were always like yelling. There was no physical abuse or anything like that in my house, but they were always yelling at each other. And 
I remember like playing with my Barbies when I was like five or six, they'd be yelling in the other room. And, um, I'd feel so angry that I couldn't help them. I was fearful of what was going to be like happening next. And I was sad that my parents were always fighting and that balled up this crippling anxiety because anxiety is multiple emotions that you don't really understand. And that took over my whole life until about six years ago when I had another rock bottom God moment that led me into church and my therapist, which has completely transformed and changed my life. So that had, that was the first major event that really shaped me or was the most defining thing. I even get triggers now that stem back to my father. I don't think people, there's so many people that come from divorced families. And I don't think that we put together our triggers today that can go back to that when we were younger, even if there was no real abuse. Give me an example of a trigger. You know, so look, I had two parents that um, were married. My dad passed uh, two years ago, but I had, you know, two parents that were married for their whole life, and I was abused as a kid physically, really, really intensely. Um, oh. So, in many ways, I wish that they did get divorced. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So yeah. there's the other there's the other side of that uh, the other side of that token, but you know, so I've got a lot of triggers that come up now. Like, so for example. If somebody gets like I am the most easygoing, fun, laughy guy, and people, you know, will usually say to me, like, do you ever get mad? And those who know me know that if there's a trigger where somebody is bullying me in any way, I will lose my shit. And mm-hmm. it goes back to, you know, feeling out of control and being abused. So Using that sort of trigger in your in your life, what comes up for you when you think about triggers with your dad? Because and the reason why I'm going into this is because I think that there's a lot of people. I know that there's a lot of people who come from divorced families, and you know, look, the people listening to the show all want to be entrepreneurs. They all want to grow. They all want to get better. But we rarely dig into, you know, we talk about mindset and the power of positive thinking and all that surface stuff, which is important. But if you don't do the work that you're doing now with therapy to really dig out those demons, then you can be you know, hitting the gas and the brake at the same time. So what are some triggers that come up for you that you've sort of identified since you've been in therapy? Oh my goodness. Uh, I love, ever- I could talk to you about this for days. Um, and thank you for sharing your part of your yeah, story too. Of course, yeah. um, you know, uh, triggers, so... Anxiety. I didn't know what a trigger was six years ago. So the book Triggers, if anybody wants to read it, is fantastic. Yes, it's fantastic. It's so when you feel like my I didn't feel any other way besides anxiety and feeling funny, which I know is not a feeling, but what I did was instead of feeling anxious because that was so painful for me my whole life, I turned to comedy. And that soothed me from feeling anger, sadness, and like the bad feelings. And, um, and fear and fear. So I always turn to, to, to being funny. Let me tell you a story. Let me take the attention off of that. So today, you know, there's five main emotions, which is joyful and angry and sad and fear and bad, which is usually a combination of guilt or shame. And it's normal to feel those. So anybody who's listening, um, you do not have to shift your mindset all day long into being positive because that's not real. That's almost like a fake positive. So it's totally fine to feel all these five emotions. And so when I feel one of those, what I call like harder negative emotions, I really have to look at, look at inside and I have to go back to the little girl inside of me to say, is this related to something that had happened when I was younger? So for instance, I'm so excited you brought this up. I joined your mastermind, uh, which is freaking amazing. Work hard, play hard. So if anybody's listening, I'm totally plugging Rob. You have to join this group. It's awesome. Thank you. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, I followed you on Instagram and um, thought, you know, your stories are great and all the people you're hanging out with were the people I really wanted to be surrounding myself with. And so I took the plunge and it was really jumping outside my comfort zone to just join a group being single at the time and like, okay, I'm going to fly around the world with this group. I don't even know who they are. That was just so outside of my comfort zone. 
And I was super triggered on the way flying out to Boston. And I was like, okay, why am I so nervous? You know, why do I feel so fearful of this? I, I meet new people all the time. Like, what is this about? And I did so much work on the plane because that's when I started, like my hands were sweating. I was like getting hot. I'm like, how am I going to overcome this? And I'm like, all you need to do is walk in the door and it's probably going to be fine. These stories we create aren't actually what's probably going to happen. And so I had to start digging and I thought, why, you know, okay, there's going to be 20 people there. We're probably going to have to get up and talk. And I hate that and introduce myself at which we did, which totally I knew I would have to overcome that fear. But anyways, on the plane, I thought like, where is this coming from? And what I realized was it actually came from a, a job I had about 20 years before where um, I was top 1% in sales and the company owner said, I'd really like you to meet with this other company and I want your, your input. And I was so nervous to give the wrong like advice or that I, that I didn't believe in myself enough at the core back then to 20 years ago to know that the owner was valuing my input and that it didn't matter what I said. It was just, he wanted me there because he saw value in me, but I didn't see value in myself. So on the plane out there to meet you guys in Boston, I had to go back to realize that's what was triggering me, that I didn't feel good enough 20 years ago. And so that's that was that link. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. So how did you... Now that... Here's what's amazing. What's amazing is that you recognize that that triggers are something that pop up occasionally. And when they pop up, you got to do the work to find out where they came from. And then maybe, and you can speak to this because I haven't read the book or done any work in this area, but how once you've identified that you have a trigger, so the, I guess the first step is having awareness that this may be a trigger. And then the second step is when you identify that there is a trigger and you know what the trigger is, how do you interrupt the pattern or is just merely identifying that you have a trigger enough to get rid of the trigger? No, um, it's not. So I've done, this is actually, my other company is coaching specifically on uh, trauma work or any type of triggers to unearth them and basically rewire the subconscious so that when that trigger comes in again, it doesn't know where to kind of bounce around in your brain. So you don't respond, behave, or feel that way again. So I know because I've literally spent hundreds of hours, I say like a quarter of a million dollars on this training. So it's not that I can do everything myself because I still see my therapist to help me through things as well. So in that process, what I did was it, it really is recognizing why are you feeling this way and where does it come from? And is it valid? Now, the one emotion that we all have is um, our safety and fear. And so that's not technically a trigger that you need to go backwards from. So like if you thought someone was going to come harm you with a weapon, let's say that's your trigger, like this is fear and I need to run. That's not something you need to work through if that makes sense. But if you're just fearful that... Like right now I'm sitting in my house and I'm, I, if I was fearful that someone was going to walk in my door with a weapon, that's not realistic. So it would need to be, well, why am I paranoid and fearful that this person, who is this person and why am I fearful of it? And where does that stem from? Cause there's a story that was created. It was either a belief system between the age of zero and 10, or it was a traumatic event after that, that you maybe, I don't know, someone chased you in high school with a bat. And so now at this age, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, you know, is someone going to come at my door with a weapon? And then if you link them together and you realize that, uh, and you do the work around that from when you, whatever age it was, where it came from, you will relieve yourself from that feeling and the stories that you create around it. I love that. You know, I think we just forget that our brain is really just software, right? So we have these heightened emotions where these coincidences, right? These two incidences that happen at the same time, we tie them together neurologically. And I guess when we're four years old or eight years old or whatever, we make one meaning and then all of a sudden 30 years later it comes back, but it comes back sort of differently. Is that yes. sort of how it works? Absolutely. So I give the scenario that let's say a 30-year-old um, guy is walking on ice in Chicago and he's so fearful of falling. And he just, he decides that he's just going to divert everything from falling on ice. So if that means he's just not going to get out of his car to walk to the house, or he's not going to go in the store if he thinks there's ice, whatever, and it's totally impacting his life. It's like, okay, 
Let's look at this. And he might link it back to when he was three years old. And when he was three, he was taking a shower in a, a shower in a marble, you know, surround and it was super slippery and he had fallen and broken his leg at three years old. And so that was traumatic for that three-year-old, even though it doesn't sound like trauma necessarily or something terrible, but for that three-year-old, it was terrible. And so he came up with well, if I walk on a smooth looking surface that's shiny, I'm going to fall and it's going to make me feel terrible, painful, bad. So he, so he never walked on that type of a surface ever again. So once you do the work and you let that little boy or girl inside of you tell the story and have someone, a professional, a coach guide you through to get you there, you can rewire that event. So he could have you know, today, go back to that three-year-old boy and he could say, okay, I understand that falling in the shower is something that could happen to all of us. And I understand, you know, at three years old, you let him tell the story like, this really hurt me. Um, I didn't deserve that, whatever it is. And once you relieve that part, it won't haunt you again for the future. Got it. You know, this is crazy. I got to share something with you um, that I think you're going to find interesting. And I think it's illustrative here for people that are listening as well. I was uh, this past weekend, I was at our mutual friend, Chris Harder's mastermind in, uh, in California. And mm -hmm. uh, we did a night in Malibu. And it was like, I felt like I was on The Bachelor. It was like this weird, like rolling <laughs> hills in Tuscany. It's actually... It looked it's awesome. Oh, you saw it. Okay. Yeah. It's actually like on the property of where they shoot The Bachelor. So I wasn't out of my head. It was like <laughs> we were actually in the front yard of The Bachelor house. Anyway, do you know a, um, a coach named Christine Hassler? Yes. Yeah, so we do similar work. Okay, perfect. So Christine Hassler's husband, Steph, who's a friend of mine, we were just sitting there having a conversation and, you know, after a couple of glasses of wine, you know, we're talking about different things. And, you know, he was asking me about, um, about, you know, how I'm doing with the passing of my dad and, you know, just, we're getting into all kinds of like woo woo shit. And, uh, I said, you know, I think I've been having this reoccurring dream that my dad's coming to me. And he said, what age does your dad come to you? I said, like 30, like 31, two, something like that. He said, how old were you when your dad was like 32? I said, I don't know, maybe, maybe like eight or 10 years old. He said, what was going on then? I said, well, a lot of physical abuse. And that led into this conversation that it was like one of those things where I can't prove it, but I know it's true. And I'll cut to the punchline. The only time that I had real joy in my home with my dad was when we were on vacation. For whatever the reason was, on vacation, he wasn't having to get up early. He was able to let go of the the pressures of having like three children and you know jumping on a in a truck to go to work and um, he wasn't coming home and going to the bar and it he was just like a different guy like he loved being there and he was so easy to be around and I remember dreading when the vacation would end because I knew I'd come home to abuse and blah blah blah. So he's looking at me and he's smiling and he said, do you think there's any correlation to the fact that you're, a, that you're always on vacation? Oh my gosh, that's just what I was going to say. <laughs> oh your my mastermind goodness. is around vacation <laughs> and all you want to do is make sure that everybody is super happy and have amazing experiences. Did that ever hit you? I'm like, oh, oh my no, goodness. it never hit me. Yeah. So, you know, all of this shit comes up and we don't even realize it. Okay, so I can go, we can go down a crazy rabbit hole there, but I have a lot of different questions I want to talk to you I about. I just want to say something really quick though. That is yeah. so powerful because I'm very similar to you. So my boudoir photography company, I didn't realize until this last six years when I started digging really deep. I, my first camera I got when I was eight years old, and that's when all this trauma for me was happening. And I was so sad about my parents. And I realize now that the reason I loved photography back then was because I was so sad inside that I loved seeing other people smile and make them happy and record that moment in time. And that's where I'm at in my life and my business. And so I could totally see that that joyful part of you as a boy and the love you felt and the probably your dad just felt like relieved and he was like a different person. Probably it sounds like on vacation that you gravitated towards that because of how, however bad the abuse was on the other side that just propelled you as a young child to say, I love vacation. This is what my dad loves. He shows me love. And so now you kind of give that to other people as well. It's amazing to put that link together. 
It's so true. It was one of those things where as, as I was saying it and he was looking at me, I was like, what is he smiling about? Uh, I'm like, I'm like, Oh wow. That's really, (laughs) really a great aha. Okay. So that camera that you were talking about, that was your, that was your pink Kodak camera, right? Yes. You still have it? No, I don't. I wish I did. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's jump into relationships a little bit. You got married really, really young. In fact, you were in college and you wound up, you know, getting divorced. Why do you think you married so young and how did that experience shape relationships for you now? Well, um, that wasn't my first marriage. These are not things I love talking about, but you know, that one, I was dating somebody who joined the military and we had three days to decide if we were going to get married or not. And the reason I said yes was because all of my belongings at that point, when I was 21, um, were on a truck with the military, literally in the middle of the country. And we didn't even know where we were going to be stationed. And I was planning on moving with him, but we were not planning on getting married. So it was one of those, like, I needed to make a decision at that point. Like, am I ever going to see my items again? And, or like, it was a very split decision. It was not well thought through. I would never make that decision again. Um, we were only married for six months, I believe. And so it was, it was very short-lived. But I have been married again since then. And you know, I think every person that comes in your life, you learn something from, no matter if you, you know, leave on good or bad terms or whatever that is. All relationships, not just marriages, or this includes friendships and family and all of that, shape our lives. And I just was listening to Jay Shetty this morning and he said, you know, people come in for a season, a reason or a lifetime. And I just love that. I wrote it down this morning. I was like, that's so true because, you know, I don't want to say I'm happy I got married when I was 21, but I, what I take from that is, um, I moved from Chicago out to New Jersey and that's where my professional career started with multiple companies. And I rose and learned sales. And that's kind of what I take out of that period of my life. Yeah. You know, Jay is incredible. We had dinner with him on Saturday night, not to name drop. I know it sounds like I am, but we did. And he is just as lovely in person as, uh, as you would think and really, really smart. So, you know, when we have more time offline, I'll talk to you about some of the notes that I took. Uh, in fact, if you like, uh, Lori Harder's podcast, she was so inspired from the dinner that we have that she just, uh, her episode this week is on all of the takeaways from Jay. He's just, uh, he's just absolutely incredible. Oh, great. I'll totally check that out. Yeah, you should. You know, as far as like the marriage is concerned, I was married before my wife was married before. And I think my wife has you beat because she got divorced on her honeymoon. So, <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta get that story from Kim on how that one Definitely. happened. So, so we all have our shit. All right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your business, what you do, because I think that you're, you are probably misunderstood. In fact, if I'm honest, I judged your work not knowing it because how, how could you not judge your work? Uh, because it's so, I think from a, from a guy's perspective. So you do, you mentioned earlier, you do boudoir photography. And so from a guy's perspective, you know, we're still, you know, eight year old boys, you know, teenagers with raging hormones, no matter how freaking old we are. Look at like, uh, you know, the playboy guy, what's his name? Hugh Hefner. Like we, we, it never stops. Right. So we think that when we see a girl in a lingerie or a woman in a lingerie, you know, we, we make certain images, uh, in, in our head about why she's doing it. And we, we over-sexualize it. Uh, and, and I'm certainly guilty of doing that myself, but after, after meeting you, and talking with you about it, I was able to really look at it from a very different perspective. So I guess the question is, you know, most people who look at this are raising an eyebrow when they hear about it. So maybe you can talk to that a little bit and tell me why you decided to choose this area of photography. Um, that's such a great question. I was actually just talking to Kayla Kraft the other day and I brought up something about controversy and I said, would you say this? She goes, well, I don't care what I would say you should. Cause you're just controversial. And I was like, okay. So, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was, I was working at a corporate company, making 150,000 a year working 20 hours a week. So I was super happy, loving life. And I just, something came over me and said, you need to be a photographer. And literally everyone in my whole life back then said, you can't be a photographer because there's already so many. 
And I was very angry about that. So I felt like I had something to prove and I loved photography. So I bought a camera and I had no idea what I wanted to take pictures of. I just knew I'd always been that one since eight years old to bring the camera with me and, and have people smile. And, and that made me happy inside. And so I come from this really small, like cornfield town outside of Chicago, very conservative. My grandma's the uh, librarian and my mom's a first grade school teacher. So my girlfriend said, what if you take some photos of me in lingerie for her boyfriend at the time? And I was like, oh my God, my face got so red. I was like, no way. I would never do this back then 10 years ago. I would never be online in lingerie or do a shoot. And she's like, I, you know, I started imagine. I started Googling and I started finding, you know, men doing this in their basements in Chicago with flash photography and leopard sheets. And I was like, whoa, this is definitely not what I'm doing. But I thought, okay, well, my girlfriend wants to do this or her, you know, my friend, and I, I want to do this for myself at that point. And so what would I want it to look like? And I thought Victoria's Secret looked good. And I said to her and she goes, well, I'm not a Victoria's Secret model. I said, well, me neither, but that doesn't mean we have to look a certain way. So, um, 10 years ago, it was very dark photography and I just decided, you know, I'm going to do things different. So I did very light and bright, exactly what we offer today. It's super consistent over 10 years. And, um, we told a couple of our friends and they were all like, Oh my God, this is so fun and awesome. I want to do it too. So I booked six girls in my first weekend and they told their friends. And every weekend after that, I had six girls booked back to back to where after six months, I, I really just, I had two phones, my photography phone and my corporate phone. And when my photography phone started ringing more than my corporate phone, I had a, a opportunity right there that I thought, Jenny, if you don't take this, you might never, you know, never see what the, where this is going to go. I had no vision that this would be in business 10 years. I have a team of 20 some women all across the country and studios all over the co-country. I never had this vision. I had no business plan, no business experience, nothing. And what I did that really set us apart was I remember Facebook business pages were super new back then. And I started posting, if my clients wanted to, I would post like one photo, like we call it a sneak peek from their shoot. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table like nine years ago, and I had this male photographer quotes that messaged me on Facebook and said, why did you put this photo up? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well you're never going to be successful or be popular if you don't put up women that look like this. And then he sends me his portfolio of all of these Victoria's Secret looking women. And the woman that I put up was a very modest, I would say 42-year-old mom from the suburbs, like just a regular woman. And right there, I also recognized, well, just because the word boudoir, which means woman's bedroom or lingerie is in my company name, it doesn't mean that women have to wear a certain thing or look a certain way. I want to, I want to let every woman on the whole planet know that you can be beautiful and you can, if your lingerie is a cute dress, then you can totally bring that in. If it makes you feel beautiful, sexy, gorgeous, whatever those words are that you want to feel, then you can bring that in. We don't do any nudity. This is not about sex. This isn't even about looking sexy. It's about finest confidence inside ourselves that might be like stepping outside your box and doing something different. Like me coming to your mastermind was stepping outside my box. And so, um, once I started doing things that no other photographers were showcasing, I started having massive clients show up at my, on my website, just like, can I please come work with you? And I was like, it was crazy. In 2014, I had, you know, we were on the Steve Harvey show. We had Vanderpump Rules fly, fly in from Hollywood to Chicago in the winter for me to photograph them. Bachelor, Bachelorette. And the company literally just skyrocketed into a place I never even imagined it would go. And that year, my grandmother at 85 years old had asked me, I know that your clients, I don't look like them, but you promote so much that now she's the librarian. I know that. I'm much older. And I said, of course, come in, Nana. This is like, it was like a p the pinnacle of my like career. I'm like, please. And she wore a black dress and she asked me if she could borrow my six inch heels because she has a boyfriend. And she thought that was the <laughs> sexiest thing um, ever. And her boyfriend loved it. And she was so nervous. And so she'll be 90 this year and she wants to come in for her 90th birthday. So, okay. I got I to gotta see the picture. You're going to have to send it to sure. me if you can find it because I want that in the show notes somewhere. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so that's my main company that I've been in business with for 10 years. 
Oh my God. I mean, there's so many things that I want to ask you about that. That's absolutely fascinating. I think, okay, so there's there's two things that are hitting me that I want to talk to you about. First one is you use the word light and bright. And I thought that I, I hadn't realized until you said it that that is really what those photos that I've seen come across your social they're very, very light and bright. Now, I don't know how to ask this question because I'm a guy and I don't <laughs> want it to sound like bad no, towards women. <laughs> All right. So with women, sometimes women feel insecure about certain parts of their body. So maybe like the back of their leg has cellulite or something like that. Is If you're shooting the pictures and they're light and bright, doesn't that accentuate more ability to see flaws? It actually does the total opposite. So um, when you add light to the picture, it'll take out um, fine lines, freckles, dark spots. It'll soften everything. So one thing we also do that's different, we do not manipulate our clients' photos. So I always say, we don't make your hair longer. We don't make you taller, shorter, bigger, smaller, whatever. Your boobs can't get bigger or smaller. Um, so we just, the way I've created my editing is so specific that it just looks like just such a beautiful, realistic color photo that we give the clients. Yeah, I'm obsessed with your editing. <laughs> um, as you well know, I have, I have texted you every time. Like it, just for those of you that want to like hang out with a real freaking photographer, like I, on my mastermind, I'm taking pictures and they look like they're from 1947 <laughs> with a, you know, a pinhole camera and she's got an iPhone and she's taking my pictures and radically, not just filtering them. I don't know what the heck you're doing it in like three seconds. And all of a sudden there's lights and everybody is in perfect color and everything looks amazing. I'm like, what did you just do? And she's like, oh, I just did blah, 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 blah. And, and like 37 texts later, I still can't figure it out. Uh, but thank um, you. you are a genius. I want to talk to you a little bit before I move on from uh, from photography. I, wa I want to ask you a tech question. Mm -hmm. One of the guys in my mastermind, uh, I don't know if you, do you know the name Natalie Jill? Yeah. Okay. Her husband um, was, is in uh, Chris Harder's mastermind. His name is Brooks. And he had a camera that looked like it was a toy camera. And then I saw the pictures that he posted and I've never, ever, ever seen photos like this in this way. And he used a camera called I think you pronounced it pronounce it Leica L E I C A Q two. Have you ever heard of this camera? It's five thousand um, dollars. No, I never have, and I'd love to talk to you a little more technical, but I'm not sure where you're going with this. So, no, I haven't. Well, the question I'm going with is how much does does a camera have to do? Because I know you've been taking pictures since you're eight, and composition is important, and the kind of camera is important. How much? importance do you put on the actual camera itself in shooting photos? So when I started my company, I started it with a thousand dollars and I bought a Nikon like basic, you know, DSLR. It didn't give me the quality I was looking for. And that's all I knew. So I knew, well, I must, you know, upgrade the, the camera. So I decided just to like, look to see what other photographers were doing. And now we shoot with all professional Canon, uh, Mark fours and, um, it does. So I wanted the light and bright. That was my thing. And so that Canon gives me that type of photo, I guess you would say. But I don't know what kind of camera you're talking about. Um, I am the least technical person on the planet. Okay. I want you to check I want you to check this thing out because I'm obsessed with quality. I'm obsessed with uniqueness. Okay. And I have been down a rabbit hole with this Leica L-E-I-C-A Q2. I've been down this rabbit hole where I'm watching endless YouTube videos. I've never seen it's again, it's 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 five thousand dollars for this thing. I have never seen photos done as artistically and beautifully as this camera shoots. And when I talked to him about it, he said it's, it's, he's obsessed with cameras too. And he said, it's the best I've ever seen. So, um, I'll check that you know, out. we can geek out later on that, but I want, <laughs> you to, I want you to take a look at it. All right. So let's get back to this. I want to talk to you about how you were able to scale this. So you took this idea, you mentioned that there's been, you know, a ton of television shows that, you know, want to have their 
reality stars shot by you, everybody from you know everyday moms to television people, et cetera. You had to trust your gut, right? You had to trust that this is something that people want. Talk to me about how you're able to hear the difference inside of your body, inside of your head, where you can trust your intuition, you can trust your gut, and you can go after what you believe is going to be good versus what you have in front of you, which is creepy old guys, you know, doing leopard, you know, leopard print with flash photography. And you're like, yeah, 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 but I can do it different. How did you trust that voice inside of your head and know that this was going to be something that was as spectacular as it is? So I never, ever 10 years ago thought it was going to be where it is today. Every year it it blows me away that where the company goes. I, like I said, I have a team of women. I don't even shoot anymore that shoot for me, which I never anticipated. But back then, like I've always been the person that falls in. I'm never a follower. I'm always like creating my own thing. So that's just how I've always been. And so I thought, well, this is what, when I Googled in Chicago, this is what was showing up. I'm like, well, if everyone's doing this, then I don't, and I don't want to do that then I'm going to try this other way. And I think that that's really important as a business owner, when you're creating something, even you, when you're creating your amazing trips around the world, you plan trips. I'm assuming that you like to do and that you put yourself in like, well, would I like this experience? And if you like it, then I'm sure there's other people in the world that would like it. So that's kind of like what I did with my photography was, well, I really like these pictures. And if I do, then maybe somebody else does. And it literally just caught on like wildfire because it was so different than what was out there. Okay, I want to be honest with you about this. Um, I wish I could say that what you just said was true, but this is an area that I struggled with, which is trusting myself. Okay. And I remember talking with uh, with Lori Harder, a mutual friend, about this. And you know, I was like, "Well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this?" And she kind of like, you know, she grabbed me, she looked at me, and she said, "Rob, <laughs> we're paying you." to be awesome. Go be awesome. And we trust you. You have to trust yourself. And it was one of those moments where I went, okay, okay, I'm going to stop asking people what I think is going to be a great experience and I'm going to trust myself. So for those people that are listening now, that this does not come so easy to them. I'm one of those guys that you you may come to my mastermind, not know that and go, oh my God, he's really good, but I struggle with it. Like I want to double check and second guess myself. So I'm a work in progress in this area. So I love the fact that you can step into it. And that's probably, my guess is it's probably your artistic side of you that you have. Yeah. You know, no, I would, this is what I would say. I'd say like, even for you, when you're creating these, I, what I always have done from the beginning was, you know, okay, let me try this to see if someone is interested in buying it first of all. And then they come, I mean, this is the photographs that we produce now took me three years to figure out how to get to where we are today. Um, and so I'd ask clients back then, like, do you like this pose? And I would see them say no. And so we then we'll get rid of that pose. Or do you like this book? No, I don't. Okay, well, then that's going to go. And so one thing, you know, being in business 10 years, 5% of businesses make it this long. So I truly am, am grateful of all of the clients input that they've given me over the years, because there's no way I could have this company be what it is a five star business cross country without asking the people that have come, hey, what do you think? Because that really shows, you know, you're going to do, of course, the business owner is going to do what they think is right. But listening to the client is so important. And I would tell all business owners to do that. Interesting. There's, I guess there's a razor's edge between listening to the client, listening to your gut and, you know, making a decision that you feel is right and taking the input from, from them. There's probably not a exact answer to this. It's probably a little bit of both, right? Yeah. And I would say you need to have a thick skin in order to like, there have been many times over 10 years that clients will say, I don't like this, or this was this way. And it made me feel this way. And I'm like, well, that's not my intention. Or you have to be able to fully listen to the client and understand they're not trying to tear you down or say something negative. They're truly giving their insight on how they think and feel about this product. Now, if it's one out of a hundred clients, which we still get these random, crazy ideas or thoughts or whatever. Um, You can't please every single person in business. Um, And so you look at the majority. Does the majority like it? Did the majority think this was a good idea? Um, And if you curtail your business to follow what the majority likes, 
I, I truly feel that that's how businesses can stay in business such a long time. Yep. I love it. Okay. Before we get into the uh, fulfillment portion of the show, I want to ask you um, in the random question part of the show, how did you get involved in becoming an associate producer on Roe versus Wade documentary movie? Oh, Yeah. So um, I've invested in the movie. And so I only make investments in things that are in my heart and soul and also anything I could personally sell. So, you know, I don't know how much you'd want to go into my thoughts on the abortion topic, but I did lead into me being controversial and I have been my whole life. I knew that the abortion law was just passed in New York, which I don't agree with. And um, uh, when this opportunity to become producer in this movie passed along my desk, I didn't know if it was a pro-life or pro-choice. And um, it, the cast is amazing. It's an A plus cast. It's you know John Voight, Angelina's dad, um, Joey Lawrence, Jamie Kennedy. It's Martin Luther King's Jr.'s niece. And I thought, wow, this is great. And I saw the budget, and it was so low. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And how did this? How did they get this cast to come do this? And so I guess they're making a portion of the profits afterwards because they believe in it so much. So I remember like going upstairs a couple months last year and drying my hair. And I thought to myself, Jenny, are you going to make this investment? Because I'm pro-life. And are you going to make this investment if it's pro-choice? Because I didn't know them. And I just decided I am not making this investment in this and putting my time into it if it's pro-choice. And um, and I have no... Um, I don't judge anybody if they're pro-choice whatsoever. This is just my own thought process. And it just made sense in my heart to put my time, effort, and resources into something like this because I knew that the laws that were being... They're trying to overturn Roe v. Wade right now or they're going to at the end of the year or whatever that looks like. I just thought that this movie would be a great time. It's either going to be a super success or it's going to be a bust. And so my heart just said, you know, this is one of those things, just do it. Just like I joined your mastermind. It was kind of like that. You're really, really good at listening to your gut. I, I'm going to give you that. You really are good at that. That's amazing how you follow that. All right. So I want to move into the art of fulfillment portion of the show and talk about some of the things that you do to improve areas that are outside of business. Most successful entrepreneurs I know absolutely love what they do, but it's all they do. So looking at other areas of your life. So first, I want to start off with a question. And the question is, are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind about substantially, um, where you're like, you know, I used to think this way about it, but Lately, I'm just, I changed my mind. Now I think this way. Is there anything that comes to mind when you hear that? <laughs> yeah, abortion. And so I don't know if you want me to, you know, talk a little bit about that, but I used to be pro choice and now I'm pro life. So, you know, it's a big topic. And I was a different person 10 and 20 years ago. And I really, in the last eight years, I've tried to conceive and I went to do everything possible. And I now realize I'm not going to be able to have my own children. And so going through that, as well as I had a come to God moment six years ago where I did not believe in God prior to or the universe or the higher power, whatever that looks like. I now believe that we are spirits in these human vehicles and we are here to you know, live these lessons that we've decided we needed prior to coming to this earth. And with all of that, that my new awareness and how I feel, I now, um, you know, I used to be pro-abortion. I had friends that had them. And, um, you know, I, I was not self-aware when I believed that. And um, I just think that was a major shift. I, I don't want to say I can't believe I am pro-life. Would you consider yourself religious or spiritual? Spiritual. Okay. Cool. That's what. That's kind of but what I was, was hearing. A okay, very got it. Large shift in Off that the complete opposite end of the spectrum, and these questions are going to be like random all over the place. But if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be, and why? Oh, um, like by myself or with somebody? Mm, that's interesting. Nobody's ever qualified <laughs> that question. Um, well, we I'm going to let you. 
I'm going to let you answer it in any way you want to answer it. Well, the first thing that came to my mind was to be wherever with my grandpa because he had passed away 10 years ago. So wherever that would be to spend that month with him, that's what would make me the happiest today if I had a magic wand. Anywhere in the world, like for a tropical vacation, I would choose, um, gosh, I've been to so many amazing places. You know, And it doesn't have to be someplace that you've been. It could be somewhere like I want to spend, like for example, I've always wanted to spend an extended period of time in Florence. So okay. we are going to do two months in Florence this year. So one thing, um, I worked my butt off my whole life and hustled hard, Rob. Like my whole life was wrapped around my business and it created... I'm enjoying the fruits of it now. And one, you know, last couple of years, I've designed my life so that I enjoy every day wherever I am. And I literally live between Chicago, Laguna Beach, and Nashville, which are three awesome places. So even asking me where I'd spend my month, I'm so happy where I'm at um, that I don't desire to spend it anywhere else, I guess. So I don't know. <laughs> That's just my true, honest opinion. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. So what I'm hearing in that is that you set your life up in such a way that you get what you want out of your life, that you're not having this need to feel like you need to escape your physical location. A hundred percent. So I, I love that. That's actually really good because I bet you if I asked you that question prior to you being set up in all three locations, you might've had a different answer. So that's really cool. <clears throat> what would you say if you had to pick one Chicago, Laguna, or Nashville, and you could only live in one, which one would you choose and why? Laguna Beach, simply for the amazing weather. The sunsets are spectacular. It's such a cool, chill place. The the flip-flops every day. That's where I'm going to end up retiring for sure. And how much of your time are you in Laguna now? You know, it just varies. I'm in Chicago because my family, my business are here. I would say it's more, you know, I don't know, 30% Chicago, 30% no, 50% California and 20% Nashville. Wow, you're I would want you I want your airline miles. That's <laughs> <It's> awesome. Um, <laughs> that is amazing. Okay, if you can only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Oh, wow. I love food. Um that restaurant you took us to in Boston, Yvonne's, that was awesome. Such a cool experience. Um, that was a cool spot. Super cool. So I love pizza. So I'd pick like a Chicago pizza place, but I also absolutely need to go somewhere with a view. So like the 95th floor of this uh, Hancock Tower in Chicago, um, the signature room, that view, if it was my last day to ever eat anything, I would go have somewhere with an amazing view. That's interesting that you said that. You know, I do you know the name Mike Adamley? I don't. Okay, Mike Adamley was a sportscaster in Chicago, and um, he asked me, I did a podcast with him, and, and he asked me, he challenged me to hustle up the Hancock with him. So I flew to Chicago, and I um, I basically jogged up that building. I don't recommend it. My knees still, <laughs> still hurt. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you haven't gotten around to yet? I'd love to learn a lo- another language. I just Which one? I don't like probably Italian, but then I think, would I rather spend that time doing something else to be profitable or enjoy my life? So I don't find enjoyment from that. I don't know what I love learning. So, um, I'm totally open. I love reading and, and research. I'm a researcher. I mean, I'll learn about anything. It's interesting. You said Italian. That's the number one answer that I get. And what's interesting about Italian is the only place in the world that speaks it is Italy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's not like it's incredibly useful, but it's a thing that everybody really wants to do, including me. And I'm studying it now because I'm going to be you know, living in Italy for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So what is the one thing that your soul has been really calling you to do, but for whatever reason, you just haven't pulled the trigger on it? Oh, well... I'll just be honest. I think I have breast implant illness Mm -hmm. and I know you know what that is. Um, And so my soul is telling me I need to get these out of my body because I've been extremely sick. In fact, I can't go with you to Monaco in the group um, because I don't know day to day if I'm going to feel well enough to even be on this podcast. So my soul is telling me, Jenny, you need to get these out of your body and they're killing you. But my ego self is stuck in the fact of I want to look this way because I like it. 
And so I'm doing, that's actually why I'm, one of the reasons I'm going to my therapist to have her help me with this. I used to feel, I know I'm going off track, but I used to feel super insecure. Um, one of the reasons I got these implants. And so I didn't ever do work around that specific topic with the way I look. So I'm trying to do that work so that I can listen to my soul calling me to do this. You know, I have to tell you, this is a really interesting conversation. Obviously, you can judge by the testosterone in my voice that I don't have boobs. <laughs> and so it's it's interesting to me, not interesting, that's a bad word. It's um, it's admirable and noble that you're willing to, you know, acknowledge the ego portion of the implants and 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 be self-aware enough to know that you're wrestling with it. And I would encourage you to, to talk to my wife because she just had hers removed if you haven't already. Yeah, she's going to be on my podcast about that. Okay, well, great. Because, and you should talk to her about this particular area because this is fascinating to me. I had more of an issue with, and, and I'm putting I in quotes, had more of an issue with her having them taken out because I was like, it's like you have D's now. Like, you know, your natural breast is an A. So how are you going to feel? And it wasn't even me. I know it sounds like, okay, you're really talking about yourself, but I wasn't because I was talking about like, you've had these for over 10 years and now are you going to go to an A? She had absolutely no issue be doing it. And she has absolutely no issue now. And I don't know how they always say, you know, talk to somebody who doesn't have a problem when you have a problem with something. So I would, I would ask her about that because she's never even brought it up. She has absolutely no charge with it. You know, and I hear that there's, there's hundred thousand women online right now dealing with this. I only had heard of it about three, three months ago. And I'm so grateful for these women that are sharing their stories. And half of the women's are just like Kim saying, like, I'm just glad they're out of my body. And there is a part of me that will feel that way. But there is this mutilation part that I don't want. I didn't get my implants for anybody else besides myself because I was born so flat chested that I felt more like a boy's body and no woman wants to feel that way. And so I'm also really dealing with, I can't have my own children. I'm going to be removing these body parts that I don't want to. And so I need to do work around you know, I know I'm a woman. I know I look like one, but there is some part of me that just does not want to look, you know, mutilated because I like the way I look. So, um, mm. it's a really hard thing that that is the major, it is weighing on every single aspect of my life right now. Well, you are going to do a real service uh, to the world on this podcast that you're uh, that you're starting, which we're going to talk about in a second. But I want to go into the last round of the show, which is our rapid fire round. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? That I can always make them laugh and smile. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? To get these implants out and what I'm going to look like afterwards. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? More questions about who I am at the core. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Um, communication, my language. I need more. I need better words. <laughs> mm. Which book have you reread the most? The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Mm, I just listened to that on audio. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. What's your guilty pleasure? Oh, eating ice cream like every day. <laughs> I love the I love how you added the every day at the end of that. It wasn't just eating ice cream. It was like eating ice cream every day. Mm -hmm. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for, but we're going to pull out of it coaching and retreats and photography um, and those kind of things. If you had to give a TED talk on something that you're passionate about, what would it be? That I am passionate about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a need for millennials to hear from the older generations and to light a fire under their ass to... Um, not how can I say this nicely? Because I would not be saying that's in TED Talk. That um, that we need to work hard in order to get somewhere in life, and that we're not entitled to everything. And so, you know, I see millennials out there that are crushing it, and I just there's no middle, there's no middle of the millennials that I feel like it's they're either multimillionaires or they're I deserve to have your money because you worked for it. So I'd love to give a TED Talk to the younger generations of 
Um, let's try to pull a little more together. Let's teach each other. Let's work on work together. Um, and also instilling those values in the younger generations too. Beautifully put. That's a microphone drop right there. <laughs> let's change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Ooh, um, what could I want to ask you? Let's see. What would you tell your 30-year-old self? To chill the fuck out. <laughs> That's good. That's what I would tell my 30-year-old self. I took things so seriously, so seriously. And sometimes, like, sometimes things are just going to work out. Like do the work like you just talked about and trust and know that if you're willing to do the work, that it will happen and stop stressing. Stress is killing us. We got to chill out a little bit. That's what I would tell my 30-year-old son. And I'd slap myself in the back of the head. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Oh my gosh. You know, I, I, I guess I'll leave with the, my, my famous quote is everything is possible. So if there was anything that I said or Rob said, or, you know, in life, if you want to do something, if you want to create something, if you want to start your own business, I am living proof that I have no formal education, no investors. And if I can build a business, you can too. And this really comes to everything. So everything in life is possible. If you want it, you can get it. We are going to leave on that note. Jenny, this hour flew by. This was absolutely amazing. And I'm going to link up your podcast and your retreats and your coaching and your boudoir photography. We'll put it all together so everybody can see it and reach out to you. So thank you so much for taking the time in your crazy busy schedule to do this. Ah, oh, Thank you so much, Rob. It was an awesome time to talk to you today. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.